And there was kind of an awakening. If there had been a 50 years where everything was going towards bigger, bigger, bigger as far as consumer products are concerned, all of a sudden people started to say, wait a second, you know what? There's no choice, there's no diversity, and I'm, we're willing to pay more for a product that we like that has a story behind it. That was Dan Kinnery, founder of Harpoon Brewery. And these are the Brandwagon interviews. All right. Welcome to Brandwagon. Thank you. Very excited that you're here. Thank um, you for having me. Yeah. So it's a long trip over from the seaport. Yes. Yes. I was going to ask, what's what's life like now, now oh. that you've moved to the seaport? A lot of walking, blue biking. It's a whole new day. It's great. It's great. <laughs> Although we could use some better weather, given how much more I'm outside. They're close to the ocean now. Close to the ocean. Yes. Notice it's cooler, but yes. yeah, it's going great. Yes. It's going great. That area changes every single week. It's, it's wild. I know. It's crazy over there. That's awesome, though. Yeah, it's great. Um, so I'd love to hear the story of how Harpoon started. Oh, boy. Well, you know, Chris, I don't know how dated we are in this show. But yesterday was our 33rd birthday. At, really? At, Congratulations. At Happy Big birthday. Company. Yeah, That's thank awesome. you. June 19th, 1986. We were incorporated and uh, started it with two friends. One I went to college with and then another business school classmate of my friend from college, Rich Doyle. We were really motivated by the lack of choice in the beer market in the U.S. We had been fortunate enough to travel in Western Europe. Back then it was Western Europe, not all of Europe, right? Yeah. Because... Uh, and I really had liked beer a lot in high school and college. And uh, the choices, it was all light yellow lagers coast to coast. Like we were excited when Molson Golden came into the market. Yeah, that's, that's pretty what exciting. it was like, yeah. you know? It's golden. And even the nationals were all light yellow lagers, but the even the regionals are around back then, Narragansett, Rheingold, Old Style, Stroh, they were all light yellow lagers. Okay. You know? So you could change the tap handles and you wouldn't be able to tell the difference gotcha. in the beer. Went to Europe and was like, holy shit, a kid in the candy store. Every town or city you'd go in would have its own brewery and it'd be a different style. You'd be in Ireland, it'd be the stouts in England, the, the, the pale ales, the IPAs, or the bitters, or the, you know, the scotch heavies, whatever it was, and yeah. the cask beer. Go to Belgium, Germany. It was like, this is incredible. And came back here like, why is the U.S. the most sophisticated consumer market in the world? Why is it just an absolute desert when it comes to choice for beer. And, you know, similar coffee back then. I mean, your coffee was Maxwell House at home or yeah. your or gas station coffee. That was... How's the gas station it, stuff? It sucked, it just <laughs> like it sounds, you know? And then Duncan came on the scene. It was yeah. like, wow, Duncan, the secret of Duncan was the donuts were one thing, and I was like, yeah, the coffee's really good. Yeah. So there started to be an awareness, and then then Starbucks came on the scene. Ice cream was the same kind of, there was kind of an awakening. If there had been a 50 years where everything was going towards bigger, bigger, bigger as far as consumer products are concerned, all of a sudden people started to say, wait a second, you know what? There's no choice, there's no diversity, and I'm, we're willing to pay more for a product that we like that has a story behind it. So. We kind of tapped into that a little bit, started the brewery in 86, raised $430,000 from 35 friends, family, friends of friends, you know, just went out and rode the circuit raising typically $10,000 chunks. We got mm -hmm. a couple of bigger ones. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Dad. And opened up, and the, one of the most important decisions we took early on is where to locate. One of our founding visions was we didn't want to be, back then in the U.S., all the breweries were like in industrial parks out on the interstate. We wanted to be in the close to downtown because that's what we saw in Europe. Brewers are part of the community. And so we saw this old shipbuilding 
uh, facility on the waterfront in Boston in a really dead part of town. Yeah. It didn't really even have a name then. It was just yeah. maybe the South Boston waterfront, but South Boston didn't even want to claim it. It was just kind of the Commonwealth Flats or down beyond Commonwealth Pier. And so it took us about six months. It was a delay getting into that space, but it, and it was very costly, as you know, from starting a company. When you're going through your founding capital and you're not producing a product yet, it's costly time, right? But so you, you knew from the beginning, like, we're going to do this, and how it's presented and where it is matters. Absolutely. The yeah. only space at our brewery that's been used for the same purposes since we opened the door is a tour room. Okay. And my partner, Rich, and I, with sledgehammers, knocked out the, the two double-thick brick walls to create windows down looking into the brewery. Yeah, gotcha. that was, we wanted people to come visit us. We had tours Tuesday, Friday, and Saturday at one o'clock. And usually it'd be during two, like one person or nobody, yeah. you know, would come. And then yeah. I had no idea how many homebrewers there were. Yeah, It was homebrewers, it was homebrewers that provided the early enthusiasm for micro-brewed beers was called back then. They were like your, your early audience, basically. Absolutely. They kind of got it. Yeah. And it was like, wow, okay, this is really cool. We've been doing this in our basement. Now it's fun to see that actual local breweries are starting to reopen. And it's interesting that you saw an opportunity that was like, all right, everything else is the same. We can do something that's different. We've gone to Europe. We've seen all these a million other options people don't know right. about. But now to make that statement, from the beginning, it was... We're going to be in town. We're not going to be in an industrial park. People are going to be able to come in. They're going to be able to get a tour. They're going to see the process. That's right. And that was kind of like putting the flag up for everyone who wanted to see what the process was Absolutely. like. Absolutely. Yeah. That was foundational to how we wanted to do it, Chris. We wanted we wanted to be part of the community and integrate with our customers. I mean, part of the vision was in some German towns, you know, the breweries around the center of town, they've got a beer garden, and people bring their their own containers. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's this real personal relationship where I'm a big believer that it's a local business. Back in the day, educating people about, well, this is not Budweiser, what is this? You know, yeah. why should I care? It's yeah. like, well, beer is a perishable product. Beer has a shelf life a lot closer to milk than it does wine. Yeah. If you can get fresh, fresh beer is better beer. Yeah. So you'd say to people like, well, we're making this right here. You want to yeah. come down come to being kegged on Tuesday, yeah. come and have some, taste it versus the Bass Ale, which was a very hot product back then in Boston, if you can believe it. Come take it, taste it versus Bass Ale, and we'll we'll happily have that taste test all day long. And today, you have multiple locations. You have tons of different brands. Like you have lots of events that you do. Yeah, and yeah. it's it's almost like a lot of that stuff is an extension of the same thing that you saw at the beginning, which was like create an experience mm -hmm. and create a brand around that. Yeah, it's funny. People have said to us, "Well, you're more an experienced brand, if you will, than you are just certainly a consumer product." And our, we did our first. Oktoberfest in 1990s. We're having our 30th this fall, okay. right? And so, again, consistent with that location, we've always been about the sociability of beer. Our taglines, love beer, love life. It has been for a very long time. We're not about, hey, this really esoteric, high ABV product, high alcohol product. You know, to have one of sipping with your friend. It's like, no, come down, communal tables, meet people and have a great time. Beer is the ultimate social product, if you will. And we've really embraced that. And so, yeah, the experience for us, whether it's you know, one of the festivals we run, one of the athletic events that we run, the beer hall, the Riverbend Taps up in Vermont, it's all been kind of to support that branding, if you will, of love beer, love life. And you also, I think you've even structured your company in a different way to, that I, I, I feel like it's part of the brand, it's on the bottles. Like, what, yeah. what, tell me about that. 
Well, five years ago, uh, next month, we became employee-owned, and uh, we bought my partner out. The third partner, George Leggetti, who was a great guy, left the business in 1990. And then Rich and I ran it together for many years after that, and then he wanted to sell the company. And we started talking about it, you know, seven years or so ago, and he wanted to sell it to private equity or to a strategic buyer, and I just didn't want to do that. And yeah. so we kind of went at it in the way that partners do, because partnerships are delicate things. They really are. When they work, they are phenomenal. There's really nothing better, because it allows you to go on vacation, for example, and know that someone's got your back, for example, back at work. But when they don't work, it can be a tricky thing, too. And so we were kind of going through a bit of a transition where a great partnership was stopping being so great. Yeah. And how do you manage that while at the same time you're trying to run a business yeah. with 200 employees? And so... And facing a very important juncture because if we sold the company, we sold the company. And no matter what anyone says, you and selling the company can mean a lot of different things. I was talking to a couple of people this morning, and it's going on so much in our industry now. People are bringing in private equity money. Yeah. And there are a lot of wonderful private equity firms and people out there in the right time and place. They're wonderful. But I've just known too many people in the craft world, which is not your necessarily your long hockey stick. Yeah. It can have a definite upcycle, but people are losing their businesses and they're kind of being made to do things they might not have wanted to do as far as building their brand. And what do you think, I mean, just to jump go yeah. further down that a little bit, I mean, obviously I know this world is as well in yeah. tech and like we walked away from selling the company a couple of years yep. ago and I've seen so many startups who think they're on that path. Where oh yeah. They end up realizing they enjoy the process and then the way that they're structured causes them to Oh, I no tell longer you, exists. Like their only option is to right. sell. That's right. Two examples again from the conversation I had this morning. This per- woman had worked at two companies, one out west that had taken or sold to private equity in 2013, 14. And they came and they brought in the operating partner to run the business, who told them that they needed to start going after mainstream drinkers. Yeah. So Bud Miller Coors drinkers, yeah. which again, it's a huge market. Yeah. So your PE, you're saying you go where the fish yeah, are, man. Yeah. That's where you want to go. You, it's just, there's no no way that it's that simple. I mean, you know, <laughs> the Bud Miller and Coors folks are being pretty well served by Bud Miller and Coors. And for you to kind of come in and try to compete with a $400,000 marketing budget against, you know, Anheuser-Busch with 50 million, you know, whatever. Yeah. That company's basically, you know, going down the toilet. Oh, I'm sure, yeah. And this other business, which is more local, they took $12 million in of uh, private equity money and the money's about to run out and they're going to be faced with a very... Interesting decision, and yeah. you know it. No, for you know, having the experience I have, they're going to be faced with some really difficult. And this is a brand that's doing well yeah. to, to the consumer out here. They'd be like, really, but they're gonna they're gonna have to do things that they would not want to do because of that. And again, they took the money. Yeah. So I, my only point is that you got to go into that with your eyes wide open. You know that as soon as you do the deal, somebody's clock is ticking. Yeah. And it better that better be your clock. Yeah, too. better be your clock. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You, you have to be okay with the timeline of what you're signing. That's up for. right. That's or, and if you're not, and you have anything else you want to do. You're, that's it. Then you shouldn't do it. They shouldn't yeah. do it. Yeah. And so my partner wanted it. I had no interest in working for a private equity backed company. Yeah. And so and I and, I, and the idea of selling it to a strategic buyer. I remember thinking at the time. I said, you know, maybe in five or ten years, I'm going to have a grandchild driving down to the seaport. <laughs> and saying, oh, that's where we used to have a brewery, you yeah, know, and that's, yeah. we, had a, we had a really nice business, and, but so-and-so bought it, and they, you know, they kept it around for a couple of years, and then they said, well, we yeah. should consolidate brewing in St. Yeah. Louis or yeah. Golden, and, 
you know, <laughs> then all those people you had, well, I don't know what they're doing. Yeah. And it's like, you know what? That's not why I was doing what I was doing. Yeah, it was part, like, it's, it's partially like your own brand, your own legacy, right? Absolutely. And yeah. I didn't do this alone. My yeah. partner didn't do this alone. We yeah. have 200 incredible people, yeah. uh, many of whom have been with us for 10 and 20 and almost 30 years. Yeah that if there was a way that I could carve them into the deal and yeah. do this with them yeah. and say, and for, as far as succession is concerned, let, you know, turn it over to them yeah. and kind of say, listen, I'm going to get paid. You know, that's the way it works. People don't think with ESOPs you can get a fair price. You can get a fair price from an ESOP and yeah. there are tax advantages to doing it. Yeah. It just means you're giving your, the company to your employees over time. So you have to deal with the succession plan that's really different than saying, hey, Chris is buying the company, he's going to run it. Yeah. You got to figure that piece out. Yeah. But it just felt really right to me. You know, now we've got 200 people with a stake in the business. And I love to think that there are people who've given me their lives, or given Harpoon their lives, who are now going to be impacted in a really positive way. Maybe someone can buy a second home in a lake in New Hampshire or something like that that they otherwise couldn't do. That's amazing. How great is yeah, that? Yeah, it's amazing. How yeah, great is that? That's right? so cool. So, and I think and it's, there's another way to do it. Right? And I think it's super awesome that you also have taken that and you've changed how you've structured the company to align it with how you want to grow. Yep. I'm with you on that one. And yep. then you actually have changed the branding where like every Harpoon bottle, right, says- There's employee owned. Employee owned. Absolutely. And that you want people who care about that. We do. And when they're making that choice, which I want to talk a lot about this choice because I feel like the world you're in, like brand matters a lot. Oh, yeah. Someone's walking into a store and they're looking at all the options they need to pick you. Like how do you stand out in that is, is obviously tough. But the employee-owned piece is super interesting because I feel like that also calls back to those same those same homebrewers. Like mm -hmm. you know, you're one person doing it yourself, and you care about it, and you're excited about it. And at least if you can think of it not as just a company, but a collection of people working together right. instead of this nebulous thing. It's an you know, there's some products that you can have one hook and nail people. Yeah, that I think that's unusual. Yeah, it's usually a number of attributes with the product that build your audience, if you will, and employee ownership is one of them. Yeah. It's not what we lead with. Yeah. It's kind of foundational. It's an underpinning. It's for those consumers that want to get to that second or third level that really care, like not only, hey, how's this made? What are the values of the company? But what do they stand for? And for those people, and I actually applaud millennials on this. And millennials got a bad rap on a lot of things, which is unwarranted. Some may be warranted, some's not. Baby boomers are the worst generation in the history of mankind, yeah. by the way. That's my group. Yeah, Sorry as a about cusper that. millennial, I think we're great. You're, you're, you know, we're leaving you with we're what, all unique $20 trillion yeah. dollars of debt, among yeah. other yeah. problems. Yeah. But um, they, don't, they don't want there to be a disconnect between their values and the way they live their life and the yeah. products they buy. I think that's and true, so yeah. I think people, I certainly know in talking about it, that employee ownership resonates with folks. You know, the idea that there are more of us in this than just, or we, you know, just a couple of us are going to make out yeah. on this deal. You know, the greed factor that's yeah. in society. And I think folks respond positively to saying that's not how we're running our business. So this is one of the facets of building a brand. Like, how do you build a really strong brand? Like, is it from the events? Is it from advertising? Like, how do you, today, when you think about the nuts and bolts of like, if you want to build a strong brand, this is what you need to do. How do you, how do you think about that? You know, consistency. I think we didn't have advertising, so that was never part of our mix. I think there was an authenticity to our brand from the get-go, because getting back to like where we located the brewery tours, inviting people down, how do we treat people when they came yep. and come to see us? Yeah. 
all those things have to factor into your brand. I, I think it's the experience even for those small groups, right? Oh my like, gosh. Yeah. It's every single visit to our brewery, our yeah. website, whatever it is. Now, website's a website. You want to make that as welcoming as you can, obviously. Any communication. I'll tell you one area that we've we've gotten some of our most dedicated customers from the complaints line. And That's there's amazing. one story I remember, we have this great guy who's our head of our quality at the brewery. He's been with us for over 20 years. And he's very articulate and yeah. he's a teacher. He, he loves that. And we have him handle all of our complaints. Okay. And so telling a story about someone complained, I don't know, this is years ago about winter warmer. They got like 11 winter warmer and a 12 pack. Okay. Well, Jamie, whatever, contacted them and we had a case of winter warmer delivered to their back porch. And that person went on to say they've been a lifelong fan. They met their wife at a Harpoon Festival. They've had like parties at the brewery. It's just, so we, and that's happened not to that extent, but time and time again. So how was, what was their interaction like with us? Did they think we cared about them as a consumer? We weren't going to hide behind, we screwed up. Sorry, you, you paid for 12, you got 11. It was our, on us. But people understand if you say you're sorry and it's a human error. Yeah. And I think that kind of interaction, every interaction that you have with your consumer has got to be consistent with that love beer, love life, or the brand doesn't mean anything. And so in that case, you reach back out to them and you gave them more beer. You gave right? them more beer. So they're in missing a very one. personal way. Yeah, and you gave them more in a very personal way. And apologize. And apologize. Yep. And the idea is not like, you're not trying to cut costs. You're not looking, in that moment, you're, you're trying to create a super fan, right? Like you're trying to create someone who's- We wronged them. Yeah. You know, we didn't keep up our end of that bargain, yep. right? And so, you know, we see this in life, right? They, yeah. They've done studies on it. If doctors just apologize when they make a mistake, how yeah. much easier? It's just- yeah. Apologize. Yeah. I think most people think about situations you've been in that could escalate, and someone just says, you know what? That was on me. I'm yeah. sorry. I apologize. Well, I think, I think there's know? a lot of folks who often miss like the cost-benefit analysis of those situations. 100%. They don't think about them as like, there's a person there who was planning on, in this case, like 12 winter warmers, mm -hmm. uh, but there's a person there who's having a really bad brand experience. And that's right. like a pretty small example. I mean, I'm sure yep. I can think of many examples at Wistia where it's much worse. Right. And it really does matter. Like, yeah, you might be $2 worth of beer or less, and you're going to give them $30 or like $100 worth of time. Or mm -hmm. to how does that scale? And it's like, well, the way that it scales, obviously, is a truly strong brand with people who really care about it. Like, obviously, that was a somebody who cared deeply about Harpoon before right. this, right? And what's the old rule of thumb? That you only hear from one out of 10? Yeah. So you think that there are nine others that got short of that beer as well yeah. who might have never bought it from us again. Yeah. So you, if you can create that experience with this other person, you can offset that a little bit as well. But it's just, I think if you just make a lot of little decisions the right way for your brand, it can go a long way over time. Because we've been at this now 33 years, which in the, you know, the beer world, the craft beer world is a very long time. Yeah, and so staying relevant to people, and it's it's day in and day out. We got to make those tough decisions, and sometimes as a CEO, that's one of my key roles. Like people will get caught up in the minutia, like we have an awesome CFO, but the CFO is not running the company, and so sometimes those trade offs between short term cost, long term benefit, other people don't see them as clearly, or they want to actually be empowered by you or by me to make that right decision and treat the person the way they would want to be treated if they were yeah. a consumer, and you say do it. Yeah. I think it's just, it's just so interesting because building a brand, it can be so complicated and confusing because you keep making these investments that you can't really see the results mm -hmm, often, yeah. but you know it. Like my, in my experience, it's been like, it's always qualitative. Like it's yeah. that person who we've had exactly the same thing where people are super upset. You actually get on the phone with them and you walk through the problem and you help them solve it. You spend mm -hmm. a ton of time and they're like, 
they become your biggest they advocate your, for right. that. How do you measure that? Like, how do right. you how do you scale that? Like values, the way things mm-hmm. that are set up, the culture of the company. It's really interesting because it's just one of those things that's so important. Like, I feel it, it, in general, brand is more important than it used to be. I mean, in yeah. craft beer, it yeah. seems like it's yeah. it's more important than it's ever been. Yeah, you know, we've been talking about this too because you know when we look back, we introduced IPA in 1993, first IPA in the East Coast, right? And people are like, "This is way too hoppy. This will never go." What Whatever. Is this it thing? was off on a, on a roll, and we probably had about a 20 year run. And this is all <laughs> yeah. hindsight, okay? Yeah. We yeah. we didn't think it was easy at the time. You yeah. know, we thought, but between IPA and UFO White and the string of seasonals, etc., it was a pretty straightforward business to manage. And in our industry, at least, we we have traditionally been probably powered by production and sales, okay. you know? Where, you know, you're really focusing on, we built a brewery, you know? We wanted a, a, a location, we wanted to make our own beer, so we've been focused on making great beer since we started. And then it's like, let's get some great packaging and design work and then just get our sales guys and get it on the shelves. It's gonna do fine. And you know what? Other than for like two or three years in the late 90s, that worked pretty well since the early 90s until like 2013, 14. And then the world changed because we went from you know two thousand breweries in the country to almost eight thousand breweries in the country. Wow. And we went to this hyper local, and so all of a sudden, you know, if you just do the math, if you think there are there are seventy five hundred breweries in the country, every one of them is making like five IPAs. Yeah. Then the math skills. What was that thirty seven thousand five hundred or thirty eight thousand yeah. yeah. five hundred yeah. IPAs in yeah. the country? Yeah. I mean, it's like <laughs> holy shit. Yeah, that's okay? crazy. Okay, so we're that's the first nuts. one on the East Coast. Yeah. <laughs> So it's changed. And <laughs> yeah. so for us, having been that production and sales, you know, we've had, to, and, our, and when you said, what is marketing at Harpoon, you know, until about five years ago? Well, it was design and it was activation. It was okay. design and then it was festivals, promotions, fundraisers, road race, Harpoon helps, et cetera. That's what it was. It's, but as far as like coming up with campaigns, the creative, et cetera, no, that was kind of an afterthought because we really didn't need it. And when you didn't need that at that moment, like, is that because the connection to your customers and your audience is just so strong that that was continued to propel the business? It was because we had the festivals, we had a lot of interaction with consumers. We had people knew us and knew us well. Yeah. And so they kind of knew, well, Harpoon, what is Harpoon? It's love, love beer, love life. I guess that's a yeah. tagline. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know what? I've been to the brewery. I had a girl, my buddy, you know, he met his wife, whatever. There was a yeah. stories around that resonated with people around love beer, love life. So we didn't need to do much more with it. Yeah. You know, put up a pretty picture of like a group of people having beer yeah. at a beach or at a, you know, yeah. all of a sudden it's like, I want to be like that. That's love beer, love yeah, life. Yeah, 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 yeah. So we didn't have to give it much more thought beyond that. Okay. And we had other brand, you know, we had the UFO brand. Yeah. That we introduced, you know, like in the mid 90s. Yeah. We loved wheat beer, you okay. know, Hefeweizens. Yeah. There were no wheat beers in the market okay. in the Northeast. Yeah. And so we really liked it and we wanted to introduce a wheat beer. But back then, people thought cloudy beer was bad beer. Like, wow, that beer's gone bad. Yeah, it's there's cloudy. There's shit yeah. in that beer. Yeah. <laughs> I know. It can't, imagine, but it's true. And so, but we loved the style. Yeah. We said, you know, we're not going to risk harpoon. With this, we better come up with something different okay. than just Harpoon to okay. kind of say, yeah, this is supposed to be cloudy. So Interesting. came up with UFO, Harpoon's unfiltered offering or un- unidentified floating objects, whatever you wanted to call it. We kind of just had some had fun with it. Yeah. So there was a little bit of a sub-brand to Harpoon, 
And that helped you take that risk. It helped us take that risk. It helped us take that risk. And the other piece of that was that we, we had such a great presence in Boston that we would typically have at least a couple of draft lines with Harpoon IPA and the seasonal, let's say. Okay. And people didn't want to give us another line, but another Harpoon line. But if it was a UFO line, felt like, okay, we'll try this UFO. And That's, so it's You know, it's so interesting you say that because even this, what we're doing right now, we're not calling this like the Wistia show. This is called Brandwagon. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a separate brand mm-hmm. from the company on purpose so that we can take different risks with it. Mm-hmm. And for that exact same reason, because there's people who might subscribe and watch every Wistia thing, but if they see Brandwagon, that's actually a different thing. So if, you, yep. if you're subscribed to two different things, maybe you want to continue to see updates about both. It's, it's very similar, actually. It, it does. I think it, we kind of, we didn't sleepwalk into it. We kind of sidestepped into it a little bit. Okay. And we've been having these conversations recently. You know, are you a branded house? Are you a house of brands? I've learned that terminology. <laughs> I had to say, what, do you what mean, are you? What do you mean by yeah. that? Um, we have historically, I think, been a branded house, Harpoon, and we're yeah. still known as Harpoon. I can always tell old timers, the real old timers, and there are a couple of them around still. He works at Harpoon Ale. That's when I know that they're talking, they knew us in the 80s, because yeah. that's what we, we were known as Harpoon Ale in the yeah. early days. That yeah. was our first product. Now with UFO, we've kept UFO at different distances from Harpoon over time, which has not really helped UFO all that much, because we didn't really know what to do with it, yeah. you know? Yeah. And so... Recently, we've separated it. We very clearly separated it. it. Has there's so many SKUs under UFO now? They're really quite distinct and different from Harpoon. They're all wheat beer based. A lot of fruit flavors. It's very different than the more traditional Harpoon lineup. Yeah. But I don't. I'm not arguing that we've done a great job managing those because I think again we've backed into it and we've we're, we've become a house of brands now with Clown Shoes and Arctic Summer. Yeah. And the cider being redone next month. We'll have five separate brands. So that's tricky. So with your brand wagon, you know, maybe be a little bit more deliberate about it than we were and figure out what what you want it to look like when it grows up. Totally. Yeah. That's and how advice. much do you want it to go up back up to Wistia or do you not care? Yeah. And for us, you they're know? definitely, it's like brand wagon from Wistia. It's its own distinct thing. And we want people to value it as its own thing. And mm-hmm. the hope is that someone will look at it and say like, yeah, I do like this. I want to keep getting these brand wagon things. Right. And if they don't, that's fine. And if they do, we can build it into its own, a bigger audience and a, its own brand and its own, mm-hmm. kind of like you know what the brand stands for and what comes with it. It's a great name. Yeah. It's a great name, you know? We have like limited amount of research that we've done like with cider and seltzer, interestingly enough, is that consumers, cider consumers don't think of it as a positive that their cider's made by a brewery. Interesting. Which I get. Yeah. I yeah. mean, I get, okay, so we have expertise putting great liquid in bottles and cans. Okay. But then they get back into the mysticism of the sourcing and the orchard and all that kind yeah. of stuff. And they're thinking, and what they at a certain level just associate is, well, it's going to be heavier. It's going to be more you calories because it's think. a beer. Gotcha. You're like, oh, it's a beer. And the same thing with seltzer. Yeah. Like wondering why our branding, we have very, we have no branding on Arctic Summer. It's polar. Yeah. yeah. With, you know, it's made by Mass Bay Hard Seltzer Company. We're Mass Bay Brewing. That's where the name comes from. Yeah. But it's not branded Harpoon or UFO or any any beer at all because again, consumers wanting seltzer, they want something lighter, you know, cleaner, more natural, low carbs, low calories, and they don't think of beer as those things. Okay, so you have a bunch of different brands at Harpoon. Can you walk yep. me through what they are? Yep, absolutely. Well, Harpoon, original UFO, started in the mid '90s. We purchased Clown Shoes two years ago. We introduced Arctic Summer, a spiked seltzer last month in May of 2019 with Polar. 
And then we're rebranding our cider, which has been Harpoon Cider for 10 years. It's coming out next month as City Roots Craft Cider. Okay. So you have all these brands. Five brands as of next yeah. month. Yeah. And why isn't it just one? Great question. Sometimes I wonder that myself. <laughs> and I, you know, we've had some interesting conversations about it. Like, could it all be under the Love Beer, Love Life umbrella, which has been Harpoon? Well, then what cider? Cider's not a beer. Hard Seltzer's not a beer. I think the short of it is, Chris, they speak to, to different consumers. You know, the clown shoes consumer, the work we've done, is really a pretty different person than the harpoon consumer. Much more adventurous in craft, kind of into that more esoteric style of beer that you can't find every place. Cares more to have a beer that others don't have. Harpoon is about bringing people together. It's a different consumer in that regard. UFO is similar, and it's fruitier flavored, lighter beer, excuse a little bit more female. Arctic Summer, this is a whole new category for us. Uh, it's a different consumer again. It's a little bit of overlap with the better for you, healthier segment, but we're partnering with Polar, you know, the 130-year-old leading seltzer maker here in New England. And so this is more about the Polar branding, if you will, than it is a Harpoon branding. So it's a standalone product. And then final one is rebranding our cider. We've had a great cider for 10 years, all natural, Less sugar, carbs, calories, and really any cider out there. We've loved it, but we've done nothing with it. And as I was saying earlier, people aren't coming into the cider world looking for a brewer to make good cider. They're looking for a cider maker to good, make good cider. So separating that from Harpoon, we feel, will give it a better opportunity for success because people who drink cider want to stay in that cider world as opposed to be in the craft beer world, if that, that makes yeah. any sense. That makes perfect sense. And it's cool, too, to think about how the love beer, love life. Like, there's certain things about Harpoon that are always going to be the same mm -hmm. across any beverage that you make. And they're like brand promises, basically. That's right. That are all tweaked, but for different consumers, right? And we have kind of the umbrella mission or purpose now is to make great drinks to bring people together. Cool. So we've modified it to kind of say, hey, you're doing cider and seltzer now, but what are some of those themes that as a company... You know, like with you guys, I'm sure there's similar things with, you know, Brandwagon and Wistia that'll always be the same. Yeah. And our approach to the market, the way we conduct ourselves, what we want our brands to do. Yeah. There's some real similarities between them, but they really speak in different languages to some extent. And that's maybe, how to, for me, is a better way to understand it. Well, it's just also so cool in terms of bringing people together because I feel like that's also part of the special sauce of Harpoon is your yeah. events and your beer halls and the runs. Like, I've done the runs. I've done a lot. I've been to the events. Like, yeah. we've had company events at Harpoon over the years. Like, it's that is a part of what the brand is. Mm -hmm. And the fact that that's, like, a promise that everyone can't deliver on. That's right. Right? That's right? Which is, like, those seem like the right ones to look for. But it becomes an interesting branding question. And you could ask any, and I get different answers from a lot of people. Okay, we have the Harpoon Brewery Beer Hall. We have Harpoon Fest. Yeah. We have the Harpoon Octoberfest. Yeah, when do you start to change those should we or be, evolve them? Or should we be serving Arctic Summer in the Harpoon Beer Hall? Yeah. Or at Harpoon Fest? I mean, it's interesting. We've had a lot of very spirited conversations about this, and we've we've come up with an answer, which is that, yes, we're going to. Cool. I'm, I've always been impressed with how you've been able to take these risks, adding these different brands, and thinking about talking to different consumers in that moment. I mean, I think for us, like it took the buyback, structuring the business differently to be able to do that. Like, how do you think about taking these risks? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I view myself in some ways as a serial entrepreneur with the same company. Okay. And maybe you do too, because it's, you've had, I've had a number of different occasions to sell and get out and yeah. go do something else. Yeah. And I've each time kind of re-upped. Yeah. You know, doing the ESOP with the debt we took on, when that deal was done, my the value of my holdings dropped by like two thirds overnight when that transaction was done. Uh, you know, so it's like, shit, you're doing that again and taking on that debt. <laughs> 
So it really was. So maybe in the sense it did free up, it's like I, I feel like we have to take risks. You have to continuously take risks. It's not a, it's not easy. It's not easy. I think sometimes when you have runs, our early years were tough. Yeah. And I think that's good. I, I have been saying to people, if you've gotten in the beer business in the last five years, it's too bad. It's a bad time to get in. And I know that's counterintuitive. Like, well, it's easy. Everyone making beer, it's just growing and we're making money. It's like, yeah, but the, the, the lessons you're learning and the skills you're developing are not going to serve you well long term because it's a hard business. Business yeah. is hard. If we're not innovating and changing and taking risks, we're going to be gone. Yeah. We're going to be gone. And there are lots of examples of, I won't even name them, but regional craft breweries that have been around the country, you know, maybe not as long as us, but close that yeah. are almost not relevant anymore. Well, it's just so funny you say that because I feel like the exact same thing is true in tech, which is that it is absolutely constantly changing. Constantly. There's new tech all the time. There's new things you can do. Products that are relevant become in, irrelevant overnight. And it's one of the things that we've seen like, wow, having a brand matters because people will stick with you and they understand what your values mm-hmm. are. They can take a guess at what you're doing next. But yeah, it's always, it's always about continuing, to, taking, continuing yeah. to take risks and pushing yourselves. And, and I think sh- that's a key job of a CEO as well because other people are doing specific jobs and they can't always be lifting up their heads and kind of trying to look over that horizon or say, we're going to take that risk. Yeah. And they kind of look to us to do that. And so tell me, so you started to diversify the company. Yep. You're a company of brands. So house of brands. House of That's brands. A term house I, of brands. I just learned it. Okay. I'm trying to okay. appear sophisticated. Okay. Like so I know you're, what a house I'm of, about. you're a house yeah. of brands, and you start adding on these other brands. How do you think about? I mean, we've even, done them deliberately. You yeah. know, each one kind of has a story. We bought Perfect. we bought clown shoes, right? Yeah. So uh, two years ago, so in 2017, we were approached by a banker actually kind of sent a pack. We want to send you information on this company, and so I'd heard of clown shoes. I'm like, yeah, you know what? We're kind of busy and said, I don't think we're that interested. And then they, he persisted. I said, okay. And our CFO took a meeting with them and said, you know, they were pretty good. And then I got a call from Alan Newman, my old friend who started Magic Hat up in Vermont. And Alan said, I like and respect Alan a lot. He said, you know, these guys, they're good guys. I've gotten to know via phone relationship over the last year. And I really like their brand. I like their brand with you. Interesting. And I, I said, Alan, you recommend I talk to someone, I'll take a meeting with them. And yeah. so we met and... We had such a great meeting with Greg Berman, the founder and owner of Clown Shoes. He wanted to sell to us. So you get back to employee ownership. Yeah. He wanted to sell to us because of our employee ownership and the way we ran our business. Wow. So he said, I've talked to, we're talking to a number of different people, but I, I love the way, I, I respect your brand and I love the way you run your company. And I really would like to work out a transaction. And we had plenty of debt from the ESOP. So we couldn't, we, were, we could not be the high bidder. Yeah, and nor could we structure this thing that was entirely favorable for the seller. We'd say, "Listen, we can do some upfront, but the rest has really got to be kind of an earnout, et cetera, et cetera." It's like that works for me, and I got to tell you, a year and a half later, it's been terrific. So that's been great. That's awesome. And Clown Shoes was way more of a you know esoteric, crafty craft brand as opposed to Harpoon's kind of a mainstream craft. Yeah, and so there was very little competition and overlap between the brands, so it just kind of worked for us. And you told me a story once about how you were working with Clown Shoes and working with Greg um, and they trying to find a space for their, their brew hall, right? Yes. And, right? And yes. I feel like this is a real, I thought this is a really interesting story around like taking a, some pretty big risks 
in the name of like building the brand, I'd, I'd love to have you share that. Yeah, and we're still in. I mean, this has gone <laughs> on. It's moving forward, yeah. but it has been fits. I think it's actually moving like it's moved partially because the developer of the property is actually having a few delays too. Okay. But it's, it is moving forward. I, just before I came over here, I poked my head in and got an update on it. Um, this is to build a retail outlet or restaurant beer hall for clown shoes. And so we have a site selected in Boston. And we're working with the developer on that. And uh, the interesting thing is that we discussed was how the, the risk profiles change between Greg and me yeah. in this. Yeah. And how you think, okay, Greg sells sells his company, and now Clown Shoes is part of somebody else. And th- that new entity, Mass Bay, we're willing to take on the risk of financing and opening this thing. And you'd think he'd be like, yes. And he was, no, he was really go slow and very, very concerned about it. Yeah. Both. From he wanted to make sure financially it was a good deal, and he, which is great. I said, Greg, I I appreciate you being concerned about that. That's wonderful. You're a team player. You should be. If we get comfortable with it financially, you should be comfortable with it financially. Yeah. What I would need you to focus on is making sure we're developing the brand messaging there the way we need to develop brand messaging. So, I'm still hopeful that that we will have something in 2020. Gotcha. Yeah. But the idea there is build this new beer hall, have it be a statement. Mm-hmm. Right about clown shoes, about the clown brand. Shoes. So it's a bigger risk than they ever would have taken before. Yes. And you've also talked about the market having tons of competitors and you all having debt because of the ESOP. Like, yeah. That, yeah. You know, from my perspective, I look at like <laughs> some pretty big brand risks that you yeah. seem to, that's almost like, that's, well, that's business. Like, that's what we have to do. That's what we have to do. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I think if, I, if I'm not in that place, I need to leave. Yeah. I do. If I, if I start to be in the harvest mode, like, oh, shoot. I'm kind of close to retirement, or I can't take that risk with this investment of mine. I need to leave because we—that's the—we have to take those chances, you know. Yeah. And I would never, we would never want to do anything like that that would truly risk the company. Yeah. You know, you try to run it, you try to run your business so that if you're going to take a risk, you're never risking the whole show. Yeah. You might, you're going to risk losing some money potentially, but you have to trust yourself. You've been doing this for a long time. You know how to make these calculated risks. Chances are you're not going to lose money on it. Or yeah. if you do, it's going to be a smaller amount than would cause you too much difficulty. Yeah. It's just so interesting because I feel like you're talking about whole new lines of business, basically. Building a brand up from scratch. Having people hopefully connect with it. It seems like it's also similar in terms of the early customers being those home brewers probably are the same types of people who would like, I mean, that's who Clown Shoes appeals to. And yeah. was, right? Like yeah, they're, they're home brewers right. who like started doing this. And that's just, that's normal risk. Mm-hmm. But I think that's actually really, that's really hard for people to do. I mean, we talked to lots of people who are terrified that they want to, you know, we need to make a new front page video. What are we going to do? Mm-hmm. And the scale yeah. of the risk is so different. And, but in our case, like if you're making a front page video, it's actually not ever that risky. If you're, you just test it, you see the conversion rates, like, you know, depending on your traffic, is it like two weeks or is it six weeks, whatever? Mm-hmm. Is it better or not? And you just move on with your Interesting. life. And you learn from it, right? You learn you from learn it. From but it. in this case, you're making a bet that's like multi-year bet. If it works, it's way bigger. It is the normal thing that you have to do. But I actually think it's something that, like these risks that you've gotten comfortable with are the same risks that anyone who's doing brand marketing yeah. has to get comfortable taking. Have to get comfortable, right. And I've, there's so many lessons in it. And I, I would be interested to hear kind of like your advice to somebody someone who's starting, someone who's thinking about taking those risks, like, how do they do it? (laughs) You know, get good people around you. Be open to learning from other people. The best meetings are those where everyone leaves a room not getting everything they hope to get, necessarily, in some ways getting more. 
You know, we've had like on the Clown Shoes project recently, we kind of hit an inflection point where, and I do sometimes feel like I'm the one pushing, pushing, pushing. And that's good because I know enough about the other people on this team. They need it. Yeah. Now, there are other teams where I'd be like, slow down, guys. Hold on. If you ask this, ask this. This team is made up more of the more cautious types. Yeah. So I view my role as like, guys, you got to see through, you got to get through this and see over this because these are normal hurdles we got to face to get this deal done. So it's knowing kind of who your, your audience is in the room with you, but everything in life is a risk. There's no certainty. So going, making a decision, then executing well and learning from it, as you just discussed, you know, it's like, do you think you've made more mistakes or right decisions in your career? I mean, I might say I've made, fortunately, the bigger decisions I've made have been good ones, but I'm sure I've made more mistakes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Quantitatively, (laughs) I'm sure I've made more mistakes than I've made the right decisions, but the big ones have typically been good. And the other, and we had something on this recently, I couldn't remember what it was, but we kind of failed quickly. Yeah. You know, that was another one. You know, maybe it's like, if you're going to, if you screwed something up, like, Learn fast. Cut it and, yeah. and move on because if it's not working, it's not not working. And we're in a world in craft beer, we're introducing, I mean, our number of SKUs has gone, I think in five years from like 100 and change to over 500. Wow. Think of what that means in our production That's floor. That's wild, yeah. And, and it means, and I'm thinking, I'm starting to formulate thoughts for 2020 about like a radical parsing of, of some of these SKUs. I kind of get out ahead of it. If I feel financially that we can do that, yeah. I think we'd be doing our consumers a favor. I really do. I think one of my favorite words in the last couple of years is curating. Yeah. Like, what are you paying somebody to do? No matter who it is, your, your, your manufacturer, your wholesaler, your retailer, I want you to curate a list for me. Like, if I'm coming to a restaurant, you're trusting them. Yeah. You're trusting them to kind of put a menu together to buy the right kind of food and curate something for you. And I think in craft beer, we've been a little bit of this, just we're throwing everything, everything up on the wall. What's the next New England IPA? I don't want to miss it. Yeah. And with 7,500 breweries, it's like, I think consumer, consumer fatigue, it's just like, I want to trust your brand. So curate it a little bit more. Don't try to be everything to everybody. And so I'm kind of fomenting some of that thinking these days. That's awesome. So you, sa- you said earlier that this brand's doing really well. Like, how do you know that a brand is doing well. For you, is it just the, the is revenue? It growing? Yeah, is it um, Do you look at other things? Like, how do you look at the strength of your brand? How do you measure well, it? Well, one thing would be revenue growth, CEs. You're he- and you also, you're hearing from the trade about how it's doing versus the competition. Like, we introduced Rec League earlier this yeah, year. it's awesome. And Rec League is doing well. We have a strategic objective to develop a flanker, another year-round product in our Harpoon portfolio that does well, yeah. we have IPA as a year round. That's it. Yeah. We tried with a number of different brands. Our seasonals in the Harpoon lineup do well. Our mix pack does well. But we really would like there to be more year round support for IPA. So it's like we need to develop something. And this came together over a couple of years with R&D on the brewing side okay. to try to come up with something that was the better for you category that really tasted good. A lot of different iterations and test brews of it. It was like, I call it the Elton John, Bernie Taupin thing. I don't know if you've seen Rocket Man, the movie, but I I, it, yeah. they did the two room thing years ago, and the movie was, yeah. But um, Elton would write the music, and Bernie would write the lyrics completely separately. And then they would just, Bernie would hand Elton the lyrics and say, write a song. Yeah. 
and um, a little bit in brewing. It's like you have the production side and you have the marketing side. Yeah. And when they work together, they work together beautifully. So the marketing folks were all thinking about, we really want something. What could be a fun thing in the Harpoon lineup in this better for you category? And they came up with this rec league idea. And the brewers were doing all these test brews on it too. And we came up with a great kind of product together. And we're just hearing really good things about it and it's selling well. So we don't have enough resources to do some in-depth consumer research and to find out too much behind that. But the word on the street from wholesalers, rate of sale information is all pointing in the right direction. And that's not always the case. Sometimes it goes the other way. Yeah. But so for you, success is like building a strong brand, getting it out there, and that just correlates directly to revenue. Yeah. And again, in this case, this is just one product in the Harpoon portfolio, yeah. right? So everything, and again, the rec league name, love beer, love life, it's all got to play up into supporting that Harpoon brand in this case, yeah. right? And, yeah. and different, the clown, if you saw the clown shoes lineup and whether it's Zen Garden or the exorcism of Rich Ackerman, I mean, all these names that kind of go into this crazy clown shoes portfolio was the same kind of thing. So gotcha. it's all, all these different, the most important statements we can make to support our brands are the products. Gotcha. It's not necessarily a marketing campaign so much as it is. Does the product like if we were to come out with, you know, a, just a beer that made no sense for Harpoon, you know, in, in the Harpoon portfolio, like really getting behind a, eight, you know, thirteen percent triple IPA, and that's everything to us. Well, how's that love beer, love life? How's that about sociability? Like yeah, it'll, two of those it'll, things. It'll start to fracture the brand. A yeah, bit. start to fracture. So the products have got to support the brand. Gotcha. If that makes any sense. So you've talked a lot about brand risk. What was one of the first big brand risks that you took that really convinced you this is how you should be scaling? Well, early on, I remember one of the first articles that appeared in the Globe about Harpoon Ale. Our brewer was interviewed, and he described it as having like taste of clove and banana, and we went nuts because back then clove and banana and a beer was just. No, you know, people are like, what is your banana beer, you know? But then we decided we wanted to get into the seasonal beer business. And there are no seasonal beers in this market. I know this is hard to imagine, but there was not one. And so we wanted to make a winter warmer. And it was spiced with nutmeg, cinnamon, orange peel, and chocolate. And it was like, like, what are you doing with that? I mean, that's just a bridge too far. And we introduced it in 1988. So the second year really a full brewing for us. And the response was kind of tepid at first, but like, what is this? And then it was just excitement and overwhelming acceptance. Like, holy shit, we didn't know we could think about a beer like this. And we are still, this will be the 31st year that we are selling Harpoon Winter Warmer. And that was a real, that was a real risk for us. So we want to take the Harpoon brand in that direction of expressiveness on the brewing side. And it turned out to work out really well. That's amazing. Another one, fun one, is we hit some rocky times early years, and my partner, Rich, to his credit, said, before, if we're going to go out of business, we're going to have a great party. And that was where the first Harpoon Oktoberfest came from. It was like in 1990, it's like, you know what, we've always, we've brought people down here, but we want to we want at least have an Oktoberfest party if we're going to go out of business. That's amazing. And I mean, 1990, that's so... held a 2,000 people came, and it was, we made money. Yeah. And it was kind of off to the races. And it's so it's so core to what you do. So now. core to what that's we do. That's amazing. So core to yeah, what we do. Yeah, those happy those happy forced accidents where oh my gosh, like, let's just do this. Let's just do and it. And I hope it works. Hope and if it does, yep. it you know really works. That's right. amazing. Yeah. Dan, thanks so much for being here. Is there any of these movies you want to take home with you? I, you know, it's Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Absolutely. Okay. I could take a lot of these home. Big, it's yours. Yeah, I hope you have a, a VCR player. We still do, which okay. is kind of embarrassing. That's okay. where our family movies still are. Wow, yeah. that's incredible. Well, we really appreciate you being here with us at Brand Wagon. Um, see you soon. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah great to see Thank you. you.